This is The Guardian. Hello and welcome to The Guardian Football Weekly. Manchester City blow Real Madrid away to make the Champions League final. A sensational first 45 minutes. Bernardo Silva scored the goals. But I don't think it's recency bias to suggest it's one of the most complete team performances ever in this competition. And elephants in the room notwithstanding, it will take something special to stop them from winning the treble now. As for Real Madrid, is Ancelotti off to Brazil? Is it time for Karim Benzema? Don't say it, don't say it, but is Luka Modric, you know, tired? In a great night for Sky Blue football, Coventry City make the playoff final to face Luton. One goal enough to see off Middlesbrough. Ivan Tony's banned for eight months for gambling on football while wearing a big shirt advertising gambling. We don't know all the details yet and he broke the rules, but you get a lot less for racism. Also today, a Premier League preview, your questions, and that's today's Guardian Football Weekly. On the panel today, Barry Glendening, welcome. Hi, Max. Hello, Jonathan Wilson. Morning, how are you doing? Very good. Bonjour, ça va, Philippe Auclair. Ça va, ça va, Max. Bonjour à toi. Yes. Hello, Sid Lowe. <laughs> morning, morning, Max. Well, let's start the Etihad then. Manchester City 4, Real Madrid 0. Matt says, Manchester City, a team who've never won the Champions League, have now beaten both Bayern Munich and Real Madrid, who have a combined 20 Champions Leagues on their way to the final. If they beat Inter Milan, who have three Champions Leagues, surely this is one of the most incredible underdog stories of all time. <laughs> um, anyway, Barry, that first half, was quite sensational for Manchester City. Yeah, um, it was an incredible first half performance from them. But I was watching it and always aware that they had bossed the first half in the first leg at the Burnabout in not not as emphatic style, but quite similar style, and ended up going behind. But as Real Madrid could barely get a touch of the ball, let alone a, a, a toehold in the game. It seemed unlikely, and City had all the chances. And, you know, throughout the game, I think uh, Tony Cruz brought a shot, a good save out of Edison with a shot from distance. And there was that David Alaba free kick that was tipped over. And apart from that, they didn't really create anything, and they looked... They're, you know, a European powerhouse, as we know, and they were made to look very ordinary. And there was one stage where it was still 2-0. They came out for the second half and they were, they were playing better because they could not conceivably have played any worse. And you thought, if they can score here, this, this would really make this tie interesting. But they couldn't. Uh, if the Alaba free kick had gone in, who knows? But... um yeah, it was a sensational performance for Manchester City and it, the first half in particular. They were very, I mean, the scoreline seriously flattered Real Madrid. Yeah, Courtois was brilliant, wasn't he? I mean, I'm not really one for reeling off match stats normally, Wilson, but Ruben Diaz, the only Man City outfielder not to have a shot in the first half. Real Madrid had one shot. Man City had 70% possession in the first half of a Champions League game for the first time in their history. Real Madrid players touched the ball just 10 times in the final third during that half. They didn't have a shot inside the City box until 61 minutes. I mean, it was it was sort of extraordinary. It was funny. I, I agree with Barry. After about 20 minutes, I thought, is this a Real Madrid plan? Like, like, are they just doing this and then they'll just go and win like they do? But eventually City broke them down and, it, and, and as Barry says, it could have been so much more. Yeah, I mean, to be honest, I haven't really understood Real Madrid's recent success. I don't think they've been very good for ages. Um, they've got great players, but I, th I think they've looked lacking in a in sort of a modern, coherent plan. And I sort of feel this kind of result has been in the post for a while. That you know, I mean, Barry mentioned the first leg, but you think back to, to last year's game and the first 20, 25 minutes of of that of the first leg of that tie at the end had were very similar. So you sort of think that this. You know, City were waiting to batter them, and I still don't feel they've quite battered them as much as. They, they could have done or should have done. I, I don't know. I, I sort of I spent the whole of the, the, the knockout phase of the Champions League last season working out why Real Madrid weren't getting battered. And I'd sort of come around to this idea of some kind of self-belief, this sort of sense of their own inevitable glory added to the brilliance of Courtois and Modric and Benzema and, and Vinicius Jr. was somehow enough to, 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 to hold off this this sort of tide of process, this tide of the 
state-funded, systems-driven machine. And then this game was just sort of what I'd been expecting all, all the time. And it finally arrived almost at the point where I'd stopped expecting it. So that, as Barry says, after 20 minutes when City hadn't scored, I was like, it's not going to happen again, surely. And almost as soon as I'd processed that thought, Bernardo Silva scored. So I, I don't know. I mean, it, it, 4-0, we've sort of got used to big scores, but 4-0 is still a big, big score. And, you know, they've got to beat Inter still, obviously. But if, if City do do that, I think we may look back at this game in the same way you look at, say, Ajax beating Bayern 4-0 in 1973 or um, Milan beating uh, Real Madrid 5-0, 5-1 in 1989. It was one of those paradigm-shifting moments in European football. Philippe, I wonder, it seems hard to pick out any Manchester City player from that performance. I mean, Bernardo was brilliant. That header is actually so sort of deft. Isn't it? But like, if you could choose one, you can pick anyone, or you or you don't have to. Just it. It was such a brilliant team performance. If anything, probably only Haaland wasn't quite at it. I guess. Well, he wasn't quite at it, but he, you know, he had Thibaut Courtois to blame for that because if he had scored, maybe we wouldn't say that. I, I was going to say Bernardo Silva, which is not exactly a very original point, but precisely because he. Uh, well, I'll still say Bernardo Silva because it's not just because of the goals, but because he embodies exactly what what Pep Guardiola wants from that team. I'm I'm very interested to hear Sid talk about that because to be honest, I really felt that we we had a team of young bucks playing against a team of veterans, and that even the twenty-somethings in the uh, Real Madrid team looked like they were thirty-seven or thirty-eight, and it's the energy uh, they deployed in midfield in particular, but actually everywhere, all all over the pitch, that completely suffocated Real Madrid and, and made them actually play as badly as I think as I've ever seen them play with players like Modric, first touch, the ball goes at a Carlton Palmer kind of distance or passes straight into touch. And and one of the reasons why this happens is because you've got players like Rodri, who was also absolutely extraordinary in midfield. Um, and, and Bernardo Silva constantly constantly yapping and at, at their ankles and taking absolutely every possible ball which they could have exploited. So, yeah, you could choose him or Rodri if you were a little bit, you know, more uh, uh, hipsterish about it. Like in the engine room, he was remarkably good, but they were all remarkably good. Whereas everybody else, apart from Courtois, was remarkably bad. Yeah, no one else is is mentioning Carlton Palmer in the analysis of this game, I, I presume. Um, Sid, <laughs> your view. I love the idea of Modric as Carlton Palmer. <laughs> <laughs> Tremendous. I mean, yeah. tonight, Matthew. Tonight, Matthew. I'm going to be. I, I, I mean, a, a lot of what a lot of what I felt watching it has has already been expressed, and and I think that idea, Jonathan, Jonathan expressed the idea that all the way through last season you were thinking this can't keep going on, and it did keep going on, and that moment when Tony Cruz hit the bar last night, there was a bit of me that thought this is this is it this is the moment that you had you've had courtois save them a couple of times somehow they're sort of still in the game and and if that shot goes in from tony cruz at that point suddenly you think i don't believe it it's happening again and logic tells you that it that it shouldn't we were talking about this before the the first leg in in, in madrid with uh, dave heitner and, and and barney rone and saying you know the, the the chance that city have of going through is absolutely destroying real madrid you know, the, the, and that's possible. And it, so the sort of the discussion was, you know, if this is somehow close, there's something about this mystique or this luck or this um, self uh, self assurance or or this capacity to withstand or to wait or whatever it is that Real Madrid do or a combination of all those things that means that if it's close, you somehow feel like they'll go through. But you also looked at it and thought City are definitely good enough to absolutely destroy them. And that's their way of getting through here to make sure there isn't even the chance of there, there being a, a moment in which, in which Real Madrid feel they're coming back into it. And, and I think that's essentially what, what happened last night. In a way, the logic reimposed itself. And that it was definitely the, the most extreme of the performances that I've seen against Real Madrid. But if you look back at last year, away in Paris wasn't massively dissimilar to this. I mean, genuinely, Paris Saint-Germain could have beaten them 7-0 last year. And it was uh, it was absurd that they were even in the game. Until 60 minutes in the second leg against Paris Saint-Germain, it was absurd they were in the game. I remember going through it last year and, and thinking, well, you've got Paris Saint-Germain home and away, so that's four halves of football. You've got Chelsea home and away, that's four more halves of football. Obviously, there's extra time that comes to it. And City home and away, four halves of football. Plus the final, two halves of football. Now, my maths isn't very good, but I think that makes 14 halves of football. Let's, let's ignore extra time because it makes life difficult for me to compute. 
14 halves of football. And I genuinely would argue last year that Real Madrid were the better team in one of those 14, which is the first half at Stamford Bridge. And apart from that, there wasn't a moment. And so, in a way, this is just does feel like the, finally, at last, the implacable um, application of logic. But I do think it's a bit more than that. And, you know, you ask about this idea of kind of players looking old and, and a generational shift and Modric finally tiring and, and Cruz and so on. If you look at last year, when they beat Man City, Casemiro, Modric and Cruz were already off the pitch. The change in, I think, both the City and the PSG games at the Bernabeu quite early is Camavinga coming on for Cruz in both of those games. And so that transition was already happening, but in a sort of an awkward way where it felt like no one could quite admit it. And you weren't really allowed to say so. And this year, I think one of the things that's happened is Ancelotti has said a few times that the transition's coming. He used that lovely phrase, I don't know, a month or so ago, when he said, I'm having to ask the young players for patience and the older players for comprehension. And yet, of course, when it comes to it, it's still the older players on the pitch. Now, I don't want to reduce it just to age because I think there's structural things you can do. And as you say, we've seen brilliant performances from Modric as well. But if you look at the numbers this year, Modric has only played about half, uh, two thirds of the game in the league. I think he's missed something like 10 or 12 games as a starter in the league. I think the same is true of Cruz. And so it was already starting to happen. I think what happened last year, not last night may well accelerate that process a little bit. Sid, Sid um, for which reason is Chouameni not getting any game time, considering how his profile and how he could impact a game like this against a team which is as energy-driven as Manchester City. Yeah, I, th I think there are, there are two fundamental things and, and they're relatively basic, but, but I think they are probably the two fundamental elements of this. One is the number of other good midfielders around, even if we talk about energy. And so if you've got Cruz, Modric, Valverde and Camavinga, okay, that's already four midfielders that Ancelotti has that he can play. And the other is actually that Jomeni's performances haven't been that great. Um, he started really, really well. The first four or five games, everybody thought, wow, this is amazing. And we got that inevitable and slightly tedious thing of saying, I've forgotten about Casemiro already. And then within about three weeks, everyone's like, nah, actually that Casemiro guy was quite good, wasn't he? For me, the surprise last night, even though Rodrigo had been playing really well, was that he didn't give himself an extra midfielder. And not necessarily with Xiaomeni as the, as the deep midfielder, maybe with Camavinga as that. And then Valverde is that hybrid thing of half midfielder, half forward. And although Rodrigo had been playing really well, and although he'd said Rodrigo was going to play, a lot of people, and I include myself, were thinking, I can't see him doing it. I can't see him not putting another midfielder in. And in the end, he did. Now, I don't think it's as simple as to say, there's your mistake. That's where you lose it. But I don't think that helped. Do you think Ancelotti's going? Because there's all these rumours about Brazil. Vinicius Junior wants him to manage Brazil. I, don't, I presume it's not necessarily Vinicius Junior's choice, but um, right. that sort of feels yeah, like this would, might not be a terrible moment to say, hey, I'll let you transition Real Madrid and I'll go and live in Rio. Well, the Ancelotti situation is, is a really... Right. You know what? The word for this is silly. The Ancelotti situation is a really silly one. Right? It's a really daft situation, which is, put very simply, I'm going to try and simplify this as much as I can, Brazil want Ancelotti to be the Brazil manager. Ancelotti wants to be the Brazil manager. And Real Madrid wouldn't mind Ancelotti becoming the Brazil manager. But both Ancelotti and Real Madrid sort of need the decision to be the other guy's fault. And there's been this slightly strange thing, uh, scenario in which Ancelotti has been kind of saying, well, I stay as long as Real Madrid want me. And, and implicitly he's saying, you know, you can let me go. Real Madrid... I think that in particular when the president of the Brazilian Football Federation came out and said, yes, Ancelotti's our first choice. I think Real Madrid felt a little bit irked by that. So, well, you know what? If you want to go, you can say so. And so everybody's kind of taught, them, or taught themselves into a stalemate or maybe just as importantly, not talked themselves into a stalemate. So they, could they do it just after three? One, two, both do it at exactly, exactly. the same time. I want to talk about Jack Grealish, Barry, because it... it I think it's a real sign for sort of how quickly we decide if a player is a success or not, especially when they cost a huge amount of money. He is now, you know, playing so well in this team. And apparently Pep wants him to take more touches. The thing that everyone said, oh, this is a bad idea. He won't fit with Pep because he takes too many touches. It's exactly what Guardiola wants him to do. And he was just sort of effortlessly brilliant yesterday. Yeah, and he's been pretty brilliant all season. And you may not have seen it, Max, but towards the end of BT's... Uh, Manchester City loving last night there was an interview with Grealish and uh, Kyle Walker so Grealish was just he, he spoke about City's 
confidence, especially playing at home, and how they feel unbeatable. You know, just we we feel like no one can beat us. And so it was him chatting, and he and he was just genuinely delighted to be part of this team that's on this adventure that's swatting everyone aside. And why wouldn't he be? You know, um, and then. Uh, Kyle Walker joined the chat, and I think it was real for yeah. Uh, it was put to Kyle Walker. Oh, that was pretty easy, wasn't it? And he's you know from our position up in the the studio on the stand, it looked pretty easy. And Kyle Walker says, "Well, I'm glad it looked pretty easy from up there because I can assure you it wasn't." <laughs> Just you know, despite Real Madrid's poor performance. Yeah, Kyle Walker said, "Look, I'm up against Jack Grealish in training every day. Me against him and." You know, it's so hard. It's so difficult to mark him. And he's come on in leaps and bounds. But, you know, if he doesn't play well, I'll tell him. I'm happy to criticise him. And you you could see Grealish's eyes narrowing a bit, like, you know, where's this going? And then Rio Ferdinand said, well, like, what, what do you say to him? How do you help him to improve his game? And And Kyle Walker said, well, you know... When he came here first, it was all about the tricks and the flicks and the stepovers. And I kind of said to him, you, you need to focus more on the simple stuff and stop trying to impress everyone. And, you know, I'm paraphrasing here, but that was the general gist of it. And uh, that's what Grealish has done, I think. But, you know, he, he does the simple things very well, or maybe they're difficult things and he makes them look simple. But uh, he, he is a key part of this city side you know pep has picked the same team for the last two games uh, and injuries permitting or fitness permitting one presumes he probably picked the same one for the final and grealish is i would say one of the first names down on that team sheet uh, wilson has um has moving john stones into this kind of hybrid center back or right back center mid changed football forever have people been doing this forever like is this a thing that already existed is that Sheffield United under Chris Wilde that's slightly different like like is this a new thing that like someone like Real Madrid and Ancelotti are looking there was that moment when they looked at an iPad going what's going on here like is it something that we just don't know how to stop yet is it a new thing yeah that, that, that idea that you you have a back three protected by two holding players yeah, has existed for 100 years that's that's what the WM was um, the idea of somebody who starts off in a defensive position, stepping in the midfield, you know that's what a libero was. That's what Franz Beckenbauer was doing. So it's not new in that sense, but equally we haven't seen anybody doing it for years and years and years. It's not as simple as saying it's just the cycle coming round again, because obviously when it comes round again, you have the knowledge of everything that's gone before as well. So it's you're, you're further advanced. It's you know it's 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 not just a, a flat circle. It's a it's a spiral. Using a centre back to do that rather than a full back is probably safer. Uh, because if you if, you know if you have a fullback doing that, you you risk a huge hole on your flank. Whereas the centre back has natural cover because there's normally two centre backs. Plus you have a holding midfielder who can who can tuck in as well. So it it, it, is, it is new and you know Sheffield United played a version of it, which I think the story was it was, it was Alan Nill's idea that Chris Wilder implemented. Who was famously knocked off his bike by a squirrel, wasn't he? I mean, it's, yeah. Yeah, it's just, I mean, I, I love the idea that this, the eureka moment, yeah, or the, the moment when the apple <laughs> fell from a tree and banged Newton on the head was Alan Neil falling off his bike after a squirrel had tripped him up, bangs his head and thinks, we'll, we'll push a centre-back forward. It's, it's no flux capacitor, is it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The, the mad squirrel of destiny uh, that is, is going to lead City to the Champions League. But it, look, it clearly helps them. It clearly has given them a better balance. I think this relates to what we've been saying about Grealish, that it's it's been a fairly common pattern for particularly wide forwards when they join a Guardiola side. It takes them a year or so to, to settle. It happened with Mahrez, happened in Barcelona with David Villa. But I think Grealish has looked better since Cancelo's left. Um, that I think having a player coming inside him was, was you know was not how he was used to playing at Villa where he always had overlapping fullbacks people going you know on the outside so you could either shove a ball out to them or that would distract the fullbacks he'd come come in field if you have a player coming inside you that's a different role and I think he he does look happier without that figure there and by having Stone stepping in the midfield it means that City's fullbacks can can both play 
pretty deep. Jonathan, you were, you were talking about a paradigm shift um, a little bit earlier, and you were taking the example of Ajax. Well, um, I, I was thinking back of the game, a game, um, the final against Juventus, Ajax Juventus, and which I watched again not that long ago. What struck me the most was the physical superiority of Ajax over Juventus as much as... Well, sorry, we're, t- we're talking this, the 73, not the 96 game. Yeah. And and um, I'm wondering if this paradigm shift is not also a physical shift, rather, as much as, as a tactical shift, because how do you harness the energy to hound players? You know, the number of times Madrid players were one against three. And I know that that's the very principle of, you know, this type of pressing. But obviously you need to be incredibly organized in the way you do this. But isn't the, isn't the biggest difference a difference in the way that you're able to get the energy and utilize the energy and, and express it on the pitch to um, to a stage where, in a way, tactics, yes, it, it becomes an integral part of the tactical setup, if you see what I mean. And I, I think these, I th- yeah, I think our tendency to separate these things is... Yeah, it makes it easier to talk about, but it's it's essentially fallacious. The physical and tactical go together, which is the whole notion of periodization that that you know, uh, Bichafraj's idea, idea that there's you know, there's four elements: there's the physical, the tactical, the psychological, and the technical, and all four are related. So Carlton, Carlton Palmer had all of them. Let's just be clear about that. <laughs> um, yeah. So the you know the idea of periodization, the, you know the great idea that Mourinho takes from uh, uh, Fraj. And I think, you know, you pointed France, didn't you? Porto was his, I don't know what title he had, but technical director or whatever, was the training. You didn't go for a cross-country run. You did physical training that also included you know, two of the other three elements. So every every training session was meant to have three of those four elements. Uh, so you weren't practicing things in isolation. You, you were working on them together. But I, I think that, that that idea of physical superiority, I, I think that's just been clear maybe for as long as five years at Premier League teams have that greater pace, that greater energy. I mean, you think back to the two years ago when City beat Real Madrid and the way Real Madrid just couldn't deal, particularly the game they had had, just couldn't deal with City's press. It was very similar last night. But that first 15 minutes, Real Madrid completed 13 passes. You know, we talk about Modric not controlling the ball, passes going out of play. Well, the reason for that is the pressure they're under, that there's no... Yeah, you know, as soon as you get the ball, there's people hounding. You've got to make a decision quickly, which is yeah you know, the whole principle of pressing. City are doing that better than anybody else, partly because of physical preparation, but partly because of their their, their tactical setup. Good, good question from Cherry Sid. Is this Man City team better than Barcelona 08-09? And I was just trying to work out: is Barcelona 09 better than that Barca team that beat Man United in 2011, or is that exactly the same team? No, it's not. I mean, it's not at all the same team. That, I mean, obviously, some of the component parts are the same, but the, the, the feel of what they were doing and the phase of their evolution that they were at was very different. I and mean, you can see it just in the forward line. So the, the 08-09 team was, has, has got Henri, Eto and Messi. Mm-hmm. And, both, uh, and both Eto and Henri have gone by 11. So you've got Pedri and Villa and you've got a very different team. And yeah. you're function, a very different function for Messi as well. I, look, I can't really answer that because I just don't watch, watch City every week. But it feels to me like there's a, there's a whole lot of elements to, to judge these two teams together. And to be honest, the sense of, I don't know what you would call it, the, the sort of the sense of the significance and the importance and the meaning makes that Barcelona team feel bigger to me. Not least because Barcelona actually won it twice. We haven't got to City winning it yet. You know, if, 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 if Inter go and beat City in the final, now obviously it's not very likely, but this is football and weird shit happens, then, then this whole conversation is different anyway. The fact that Barca do it twice... Um, that Barcelona's midfield is all made up of kids who've come through the youth system. I don't know the whole, the kind of the feel for it is very different, and I, I just I think that Barca team at the moment isn't isn't matched by the City team. I think you're absolutely right because you know we've gone through you know in 2008 when Guardiola takes over Barcelona, football was going through this period of quite attritional football that like Mourinho, Greece, uh, Benitez, you know the, the football was was not necessarily that that sort of the thrilling high-tempo football we're used to now. And so for somebody then to sort of repurpose pressing for the new age, it felt radically new. So maybe this is an evolution on that, but it's a much smaller step from there to now than from what had gone before 2008 to 2008. And, and not least the fact that it's the same manager pushing it through. Yeah, so, absolutely. So, yeah, yeah. So, so, you know, you, you, you can look at that Barca team and say, well, is this City team better? Well, even if it is, 
does this City team exist without Guardiola having done that with that with those two Barcelona teams? Yeah, I think that's a very fair point. Yeah, fascinating. Osh says, I, ca- I cannot see any conceivable way in which Manchester City do not go on to beat Inter Milan in the final. That said, in which minute of added time is Edin Dzeko going to score the winner from a corner? Um, <laughs> Barry, could you, can, you, can you think of a way that Inter could do this? Yeah, it's a one-off game. City could have a collective bad day at the office and Inter could beat them, you know, Wigan beat them in an FA Cup final when they were, I think, the worst team in the Premier League or certainly one of the worst teams of the Premier League. So um, it's possible, but I would say it's incredibly unlikely and I think City could batter them. Mm. Um, The Man United game in the Cup final, FA Cup final is going to be enormous, isn't it? Uh, Tom says, after City win the treble, Nathan Jones has an excellent after-dinner circuit anecdote that he only he stopped the quadruple <laughs> in 2022-23. Um, a lot of people talking about Scott Carson, of course, who uh, won a Champions League in Istanbul with Liverpool, obviously wasn't on the pitch, and now it's unlikely to be selected for this game. You never know. Look, it's so funny that he's standing there on the pitch afterwards. He looks so old, doesn't he? <laughs> Next to the rest of the season's gone. But can you can you name another English goalkeeper who's won the European Cup of Champions League with two different teams? Did he play in the games? He played a total of nine minutes across the two games. Oh. He, 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 he won both finals. European Cup. European Cup, yeah. Spink. Uh, I mean, not speak, but but that's that's kind of the right answer. So Jimmy Rimmer, he was on the bench for Manchester United in 1968, and then started for Villa in '82 and went off for nine minutes for Nigel Spink. Ah, oh, okay, not a bad, not a bad guess. Um, Sam says, talk about the elephant in the room a bit more, please. Jake says the asterisk key is is going to have a lot of work to do on the 2022-23 season Wikipedia page in a couple of years, isn't it? Look, we talked about it a lot on the last pod. I mean, Philippe, you are allowed a word on the fact that, you know, this city side do have 115 charges from the Premier League still to come. We obviously don't know the outcome. I mean, we we, should, we, we, we have to take our collective hat and doff it to Adam Crafton, who came up with the stat of the night, don't we? Manchester City have not lost a match since being charged 115 times by the Premier League. That's absolutely magnificent, I think. And um, that's a beauty. And uh, yes, that's the elephant in the room. That's the elephant in the dressing room. This is uh, and, and the problem that we have, I think, every time we need to qualify something, it's the same problem we have when we talk about Newcastle United. It's the same problem we have when we talk about PSG. Though I think that PSG are getting much more flack in a way, in a consistent way, probably because they're also uh, a clown car of a club. Um, than, than Manchester City is, where uh, you're supposed not only to admire them, but to love them. And if you don't love them, in a way, you're sacrilegious. And if you uh, start saying, well, hold on a minute. I mean, I saw a German journalist yesterday say something like, Pep Guardiola couldn't have won the Champions League uh, with Barcelona without Messi. He couldn't possibly win the Champions League with Manchester City without money. And, um, and of course, how this money came into the club is, is what is the problem. And and part of the problem is is precisely because we cannot really talk about it at every single game. This is one of the reasons why I think many people think are, are so frustrated about it. Because what are you going to do? And and of course, the media and especially the broadcasters and rights holders will not remind us of what is going on. And to be honest, which we have absolutely no idea about, because as you know, the Premier League has decided to be totally silent and for understandable reasons, by the way, about the whole process. And we don't know what the um, end uh, result of this process is going to be. So therefore, we're in a situation where we cannot talk about it, but everybody knows about it. And and in a way, we are told, well, why don't you talk about it? It's because how can we talk about it apart from the way we are doing right now, by the way, um, my dear Max, thanks to you. I just think it's interesting that Irish television led their post-match analysis um, last night with a long conversation about the charges City are facing. Uh, BT Sport didn't mention them at all. Uh, there was no mention whatsoever and their their coverage was little short of cheerleading. Noted. Noted. I'm trying to think if we, I think we very briefly mentioned we didn't do a whole lot on it. We have talked about it before on the Australian coverage, but um, you know, I can't sit there and say we weren't we didn't talk about it that much. It is, it, you do feel, it's funny, when you're doing a live game, you sort of feel, oh, we should just talk about the football, but you're absolutely right. Try and talk about it 
the right amount. Try and get the balance right because whenever we do talk well, about... the thing is, uh, I, I love watching people who are brilliant at what they do do what they do, whether it's Manchester City players playing football, Ronnie O'Sullivan playing snooker, Chris Rock doing stand-up comedy, whatever, you know. I, I, Lord Panic standing up in court. Yeah, Lord Panic standing <laughs> up in court. <laughs> Uh, with, with flanked by you know a team of fifteen very well paid barristers, but yeah, that that big asterisk is there, and and as much as Manchester City fans hate it being brought up, it's hard to ignore. But although a lot of people do ignore it, <laughs> well, I mean, in a way, in a way, that's the thing, isn't it? It's actually it's actually quite easy to ignore when you're watching the game itself. It's quite easy to ignore because there isn't always a natural place for it to be mm. because you're taken into the game itself. I've got to stop you. Producer Joel has, for the first time, written "please" with exclamation marks in the history of this pod that part one has been too long, but it is probably the most in- interesting part of uh, yesterday's action. But fear not, we will do the playoffs and do Coventry justice in just a second. Sid, you may go now if you want. Adios, cheerio. See ya, uh, Sid Lope out in Spain. Uh, that'll do for part one, back in a tick. Welcome to part two of the Guardian Football Weekly then. Uh, Middlesbrough nil, Coventry won. League two, five years ago, Luton was second and Coventry was sixth. Brian says, I've finally come around to the fact I'm almost 47 and no longer a teenager. But now Luton or Coventry are back in the top tier. How? Why? Should I start listening to Taylor Swift? It'll be three promotions in five years for one of these teams. Um, and Barry, it is the playoff final that the neutrals won. You know, both amazing redemption stories. Absolutely incredible that one of those teams are going to be in the Premier League next season. Uh, as you say, League Two five years ago. In terms of budget, uh, Coventry are 22nd in the league. In the championship, Luton are twentieth. Um, That's amazing. Yeah, uh, it's incredible. Uh, Coventry have had so many setbacks. Now, I'll be honest. I only saw a highlights package of this game, and I noted that the highlights of the first half in this package lasted eleven seconds. <laughs> so, uh, I can't. I can't speak for the quality of the game, but I don't think anyone involved will care. Middlesbrough fans will be pissed off. Coventry City fans will be delighted. Coventry have had so many setbacks in recent years. They nearly went out of business. Uh, they've been without Callum O'Hare, who's arguably their best, well, their best player after that guy, a striker, striker fellow, the Swedish guy. For the first two months of the season and all the second half of the season, remember their pitch was, was unplayable for a couple of months at the start of the season because a rugby tournament had been played on it. So they had a big backlog of games that left them meant they were bottom of the table. So Mark Robbins has done an incredible job there in the face of extreme adversity. He never seems to be mentioned with bigger jo- in conjunction with bigger jobs, which I find puzzling. But you know, Coventry fans won't care. Um, I don't really care who wins this game, but I do have a soft spot for Coventry because a uh, an old flatmate of mine who who have sort of fallen out of touch with. Whenever he came home pissed, he used to put on the 1987 FA Cup final <laughs> and uh, we'd all have to watch it. So I, I got to the stage where I, I, I knew the commentary to that game off by heart because he came home pissed a lot. Can you just fast forward to extra time? I mean, like, this sort of thing. <laughs> Come on, Jeff. Let's just let's get to Mabbitt's own goal. That's all we need, don't we? I mean, I guess the point is, Philippe, that for Luton and Coventry, the way that Barry has talked about their finances... There is obviously huge pressure on this game whenever it's played, whoever's playing it. But you get the sense that, I don't know, maybe I'm wrong on this. I don't watch championship football all the time. But the one that doesn't get up, and even if the team that goes up goes comes straight back down, the one that doesn't get up is unlikely to have another great chance to get up anytime soon. Yeah, but the one who gets up will have a chance if it goes down, which is very likely. Um, to bounce back very, very quickly. If you look at the way that um, the kind of yo-yo, the, the lift has been working between, you know, uh, the ground floor and the first floor uh, between the Premier League and, and the Championship, uh, you basically, when we talk about it's funny, it's like there's a kind of super elite of the non-elite, you know, what's happening in the Champions League, it's also happening in a way in that weird uh, place where 
there's a yo-yo land the, the yo-yo land exactly this kind of mixer where suddenly you re- they're always the same team more it's not where you want to go as a kid is it it's like really mum and dad taking you to yo-yo land <laughs> like, I'm bored after five minutes to be brutally honest but in this particular case because you cannot see either g- given the budget that they have at their disposal and even despite the excellence of their managers or, and, and, and the passion of their supporters uh, neither Luton nor Coventry City are in a position where they can do the kind of major investment, inverted commas, that promoted teams traditionally have to go through. So you would expect them, or one of them is going to go up, and you would certainly, I wouldn't say bet, because that's not the word I'm going to use anymore in this context, um, but you would certainly think that there will be, obviously, favourites to go down immediately. But once they, when they go down, they will have quite a few million quid in the bank. And they will be able to build back on that, which is the way, for example, Burnley uh, worked under Sean Dyche, where relegation was not a problem. Relegation was another stepping stone in a certain way. So if you, as long as you look at things that way, it's, there's nothing to be you know, worried about in a way. It wouldn't be, relegation is not necessarily uh, hell. Bob says, are we all hoping that Coventry get promoted and sign a load of random Moroccan skill merchants? <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, Rob says, does anyone else think that Mark Robbins looks like a bear with no fur. <laughs> I, sort of, I sort of understand what you mean. That's my favourite question of the day. He's done an incredible job, hasn't he? Look, we covered Sunderland yesterday. Wilson, are you are you relieved? In many ways, I think, yeah. Yeah, I mean, they, they finished 11 points behind Luton. Luton with a better side over the season. Sunderland snuck into the playoffs. I still don't understand how the, even the maths work, given Sunderland failed to win 10 of the last 15 games of the season. So to, to, even to make it as close as they did against Luton, given they had one outfielder over six foot tall, was vaguely miraculous. Yeah, but the last five goals Sunderland conceded this season were all from corners. Quite apart from how young the squad was, the fact that they'd only been promoted last season, the, the injuries you know, left them essentially helpless in that game. So it wasn't a huge surprise that Luton put the ball in the ball, put, put the ball in the box a lot, and um, got joy from it. So. If you get eighty points, you you have more right to be in the playoff final than if you get sixty nine points. I, you know, I, I don't begrudge Luton their place there, and hopefully Sunderland can build, and this young team that Tony Mowbray started to put together can develop. However, Amajal is probably going to go back to Manchester United, and a couple of other players may leave. I, you know, I've seen stuff about Anthony Patterson, the goalkeeper, that, that he's been linked with Premier League clubs, and and also there's Tony Mowbray's very strange comments after the game on Tuesday. Which suggests that his future isn't secure. Which seem unless there's some extraordinary coach waiting to come in, that would seem to be a really, really odd move because Mo, the job Mowbray's done. Frank Lampard will be available, Wilson. You'd, you'd like that, wouldn't you? Uh, Matthew says, "Who wrote the spinal tap line for Wilson in his Sunderland Luton report?" Uh, Ellis Sims was recalled by Everton. Corey Evans has not played since January, and centre backs have been coming as endangered as drummers in Spinal Tap. Do you now have like a sort of a zeitgeist <laughs> cultural references well, from to help you? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> to help you. Or you, is that a film you've actually seen? I saw it on a plane once, I think. It was quite good. I quite enjoyed it. And Barry keeps referring to it every time we get lost in the bowels of some <laughs> kind of theatre in some provincial <laughs> town. <laughs> um, let's move on. Uh, let's talk about Ivan Tony. He's been banned from football for eight months after he accepted breaking Football Association betting rules. He's been charged £50,000, warned about his future conduct for 232 breaches of the FA's betting rules. The FA said his, his sanctions were subsequently imposed by an independent regulatory commission following a personal hearing. The written reasons for these sanctions will be published in due course. The FA will wait to review them before commenting further. His suspension starts immediately. Um, he can't train for four months. Presumably, he can't train with his club. Like, like <laughs> we're going to be on the door of fitness first, going, sorry, mate, you can't get in. Um, so uh, he won't be able to play again until the 17th of January, 2024. He posted on Instagram saying, I will make no further comment at this point other than to thank my family and friends, Brentford, and our fans for their continued support through what's been a very difficult time. Um, we need to wait for the full report before we say too much on Tony, because we just don't know exactly what he's bet on. And that does matter. Um, but, you know, there are wider questions here, Barry, aren't there? Like, lots of people are talking about this, and we have mentioned it before. But, you know, an eight-month ban for a sport, as Matt says, doing an activity which is also one of that sport's main forms of sponsorship income. It seems harsh. 
he broke the rules and he's aware of the rules so I do think he should be punished but eight months seems excessively punitive I also find the timing of the ban weird I don't know why he wasn't banned when he pleaded pled guilty to the charges and you know he he plays football with a gambling big gambling advert on the front of his shirt he came up through leagues that were sponsored by a, a betting company and i saw you posted about it on twitter yesterday saying it seemed you know a bit ridiculous or there were double standards you obviously got accused of double standards because you work for talksport who who have loads of betting ads i people don't seem to make the distinction that if you work on Talksport, you you are allowed bet on football. If you want, that's fine. And then you have the the types who never ever fuck up in life, going, "Oh, well, he knew the rules. He should have been banned for life, or he should have been banned for five years." And there is precedent in that. Joey Barton got, I think, a worse ban that more or less finished his playing career. But uh, yeah, I I think it's harsh. I think. And if you look at the punishments that are meted out for what I would argue are far uh, worse um, crimes, then it does seem excessive to me. It's just, it is, and also, Philip, there is just a wider conversation just about the amount of gambling advertising and uh, in in football and gambling linked with football. As Barry said, look, I sent that tweet out. A lot of people have said, look, you know, you do have gambling partners on your radio show. We've talked about that before and, you know, my decision to step away from taking direct money but to, to not have to resign from all my work. But can you see a stage where it gets like tobacco? Or Yeah, I hope so. Um, I don't think we're heading that way. Uh, the, the betting lobby is far too powerful for that. Um, there's a few things I, I would like to add and, you know, it's up to producer Joel to... to <laughs> Uh, make an executive decision here to see what ends up on the cutting floor. First thing I would say, we cannot, of course, presume what charges. But one thing I can tell you, judging by former decisions of the uh, disciplinary panel, which is convened by the FA, is that if you took eight months for over 200 betting offences, I don't think there is any chance that he did anything that would have damaged the integrity of the game that he's involved in. That's the first thing I would like to say. Second thing, when it comes to the harshness of the punishment, uh, which is basically he got a cantona. Uh, he got what cantona got uh, for kicking a hooligan, um, and it's it's harsh, but it's not very it's not out of the um, I would say the scale of punishment that the FA inflicts. And I would really really encourage people to have a look at the decisions taken by the FA against, in particular, semi pros and amateur players who have been found guilty of of putting bets. Some of them are absolutely astonishingly long. So that's what, that was to be expected. Um, now, I had a look at rule E8, which is the rule that um, uh, Ivan Tony infringed and accepted he infringed. And I don't know if it's a case of cognitive dissonance, so if there is something that is a bit cheeky at the FA. When you go to their website, the picture which illustrates the know the rules betting, match fixing, and inside information, this is from the FA.com, this is official, is a picture of uh, Wilfried Zaha wearing a Crystal Palace shirt on which there is the name W88. And uh, they don't seem to see any kind of... Uh, I mean, I don't know. Do they do it as a kind of a funny joke? Uh, because it's not funny at all, is it? There are plenty of other things. I mean, the hypocrisy of the football world in England is, and elsewhere, is absolutely astonishing. It's not just that he has a... Uh, he, Tony was wearing a jersey with the name of a South African bookmaker on, on, on you know, the front. His club is owned by a gambling man. You know, Matthew Benham is the owner of Smart Odds, for Christ's sake. He didn't make his millions, his hundreds of millions, by being a poker player or anything like that. He's somebody from the gambling industry, but this is where he comes from. Anyway, he's from the betting industry. So is Tony Bloom from Brighton. You know, lovely little Brighton, lovely little Brentford. They're part of it, part of the system. And I'll go further as well. This will E8... You know, I, I think it is also, the way it's applied, it's also, uh, if you place a bet, oh, you're guilty. But if you have a relationship with the, with the betting industry, which is a relationship of uh, ambassadorship, I mean, for example, the presenters of our favorite TV football programs can all be seen in advertising, you know, clips. I'm not saying that's necessarily wrong and illegal. It's not illegal. What I'm saying is that it's very easy to fall like a ton of bricks on a player who is more likely to have a problem than to fix matches. 
than to actually address the real problem, which is the fact that football and gambling are living in a kind of uh, symbiosis, which is extremely unhealthy, and uh, that is not being looked at properly. And that, all, anyway, the, the, what has been done in the gambling paper, also watered down, won't have any impact whatsoever. So you can feel that I'm a little bit angry about that. I'm actually very, very angry about that. So yes, to answer your question, I would be in favor of a blanket ban of all advertising on gambling, all of it. Shirts, stadiums, television, radio, everywhere. Sponsorship. And I can't understand why this is not a point of view which is shared by most people. Um, I mean, actually, by almost everybody, except by the people from this industry, which is costing 400 lives in this country every year. And uh, so, yeah, it's a, we were talking about elephants in the room. This is a whole herd of them trampling on, on the most sacred values of football, blah, blah, blah. And um, so, yeah, we're not doing enough. Thanks, Philippe. That'll do for part two. Uh, we'll very briefly look at the uh, Premier League games over the weekend in part three. Welcome to part three of the Guardian Football Weekly. Um, uh, Wilson, pick out some Premier League games for us to look at, please. Uh, I'm going to first for Arsenal. Um, if Arsenal don't win that, then the, the title race is formally over rather than just being actually over. <laughs> uh, it's obviously a big, a big game for Forest uh, in terms of relegation battle, uh, not least because they, they really struggle away from home in their final game of the season to away Crystal Palace. So they, they probably could do with something from that. Uh, Wolves-Everton is obviously huge at the bottom. I mean, Sorry, in terms of a title race, City-Chelsea on Sunday, the City probably will wrap it up there. Um, but it depends what, what Arsenal do on, on Saturday, so what they need. Liverpool-Villa, I guess, is semi-important in terms of who gets in which European competitions. West Ham-Leeds, uh, big for Sam Allardyce's survival bid. Newcastle-Leicester is obviously big for, for Leicester. I, mean, I think the, the, the team's coming down. You know, we, when we were talking about Luton v Coventry in the final before and how difficult it would be for the team that loses. I've seen a lot of people sort of suggesting that next season's going to be unusually tough in the championship with Ipswich and Plymouth going up. Uh, I think the fact that Wednesday ha- yeah, almost certainly won't go up probably slightly ameliorates that. But I'm not actually sure the teams coming down are going to be that good. I think Southampton have gotten... In, I know they spent a lot of money, but I think they've been all kinds of bother. If Everton were to go down financially, they're in a terrible mess. Um, so I, I, I think the Leicester have got so many players out of contract, haven't they? So many players will go at Leicester. Yeah, there's a sort of temptation to see the name and judge the name on the quality of the squad. And the nature of the championship is there's always sort of a dozen teams who are pretty good who who can 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 challenge for the playoffs. So yeah, I think it's a bigger weekend in terms of the relegation battle than it is for anything at the top end of the table. I mean, I, I, and there's also Brighton Newcastle tonight, which uh, oh, it's the other way around. Isn't it? It's Newcastle Brighton tonight. Uh, which, you know, if were Newcastle to to lose that, I guess they suddenly become in, in range of Liverpool. Yeah, um, Philippe, can you explain your article on the Saudi twenty thirty World Cup bid in one minute? <laughs> I find it very interesting. Um, it's something which is happening away, I would say, from the public eye. Is that uh, the host country of the twenty thirty World Cup uh, will be decided at um, a special congress convened probably in Zurich, probably in September next year. So we're basically entering the, the final sprint. And the bids in uh, uh, the official bids are on, you've got Spain, Portugal and Morocco, uh, with Ukraine added as a kind of symbolic uh, host, if possible, for one game. But it's Spain, Portugal, Morocco, so the Mediterranean bid. We've got the South American bid, the Conmebol bid, which joins Uruguay, the obviously who organized the very first and won the very first World Cup in 1930, together with Argentina, uh, who are also teaming up with uh, Paraguay and Chile. And then you've got the third bid, which is the Saudi bid, um, with Egypt and Greece, So, which is three confederations. Saudi Arabia is Asia, Egypt is Africa, and Greece, of course, is Europe. So, and for a while, people have thought, well, you know, the... For the Saudis, it's it's a bit of a symbolic bid. They they know that compared to the weight of those the South American and the European African bid, that maybe they don't really stand a chance. And I don't agree with that at all. And I think what is going on at the moment is quite extraordinary. What the Saudis are doing, which is very, very clever, is that they're signing so-called memorandums of understanding with a number of federations and member associations of FIFA. 
And what they're doing is that um, they're going to countries like Brunei, Nepal, Tajikistan, Sudan, blah, blah, blah Ghana, Ivory Coast, Croatia, uh, quite remarkably, Ecuador. And they're signing cooperation deals through which, let's say, uh, they offer their help. Let's put it that way. Like, oh, you can have a training camp in our lovely, you know, stadiums in Jeddah. Or we'll organize a nice friendly for you. Or we will actually finance, help finance, give a loan, whatever, uh, this sta a stadium uh, like they did for Mauritius. And, and you know, it's, it's just exerting influence. And on the 12th of May, they did something which is huge. They signed a memorandum of understanding with the African Football Confederation. 54 votes out of 211 for the choice of the 2030 host for the World Cup. Now, this hasn't made the headlines, but they're carrying on. They've signed, I think, within the last two weeks, three other memorandums of understanding with Vietnam, Botswana, and I forget one. And, and so they're building up this incredible weight of support in world football. And I think that it will carry on. They've got the money to support those cooperation agreements. I think that the World Cup might conceivably go to Saudi Arabia. I don't know. Maybe I'm, I'm being a little bit cynical or sarcastic here. But it's really, it's quite clever what they're doing. But so, I mean, the first time ever, Philippe Claire has been cynical on the podcast. <laughs> it's a, a good place to end it. James says, Max, you know the way you chatted yesterday about the Milan Ultras getting an opportunity to shout at, berate and or cajole the Milan players. Any chance you consider something similar for the pod? We could pick you up when you're down, cut you down when you get too cocky, etc. Would you like a selection of listeners on the Zoom call, Barry, at the end of a pod? Just to tell us how shit we are. Isn't that what Twitter is for? <laughs> <laughs> Finally, a question from Zvonimir says, question for Barry. Any news on the Holly Willoughby, Philip Schofield front? It's not looking good for Philip Schofield, put it that way. And it, oh, really? It's look it, he'll lose out on this morning, will he? It's looking like he might lose the this morning gig. A former Big Brother contestant from... Birmingham, whose name I can't remember, seems to be odds on to take over. Uh, so it would be uh, two female presenters. Right. And it's Philip upset. It's Philip upset about this. Well, he's hired a. P how does Gordon the How does Gordon the Gopher feel? He's uh, Philip has hired a PR crisis team management team, oh, which wow. never really seems to be a good idea. I don't know if Gordon the Gopher is part of that team or not, but um, I've never been more interested in in this morning uh if right. for anyone who wants to to gen up on it i'm aware there's probably vast swathes of our listeners who have no idea what i'm talking about marina hyde wrote a typically brilliant article about it uh, a couple of days ago i mean it might be it might be incredibly serious so i might you know i don't know if we should be joking about it but you know i do understand that it is it is lord panic gordon the go from ed the duck <laughs> who are representing <laughs> <laughs> who are representing, who are arriving in one of Pat Sharp. He's borrowed one of the cars <laughs> off Funhouse from Pat Sharp and, uh, you know, to get to court. But, you know, good luck to everybody involved. I hope they can find an amicable solution. And that will do for today's Guardian Football Weekly. Thank you, Philippe. Thank you, Max. Thank you, Wilson. Cheers, thank you. Thank you, Baz. You're welcome. Our Football Weekly is produced by Joel Grove. Our executive producer is Danielle Stevens. We'll be back on Monday. This is The Guardian.